When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May 10th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, and I have an announcement to make. The announcement is that Commentary's annual roast, uh, I believe this will be our 11th roast, is on, will take place on Monday, November 22nd, 2021 in New York City. This is one of the, I, I'm saying this even though I am the master of ceremonies and therefore should be considered a biased speaker. This is one of the highlight events uh, in the conservative world. Uh, people adore it. It's an evening of hijinks, laughter, merriment, and incredible good fun. Uh, and we will be providing you with details about how you can come, how to buy tables, how to buy seats. In, in times to come, uh, in, you know, uh, weeks and months to come. Uh, uh, and uh, really, uh, if you haven't been, you should. If you have been, you got to come back because we are all going to be together in a ballroom. I'm guessing we're going to be unmasked because we're going to talk about why I think we're going to be unmasked a lot sooner than people seem to think we're going to be unmasked in some quarters. Um, and the roastee is our own Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik, commentaries, Jewish commentary columnist, uh, perhaps the leading voice, uh, intellectual voice in America on issues of religion, faith, and the founding and the American experiment, uh, a hilarious guy on his own, uh, an absolutely maddening person as he is about 12 years old. He has... He has a rabbi's ordinance. He has uh, he is the rabbi of the oldest synagogue in North America. He is the uh, he has a PhD from I don't know where I can't even remember where uh, in American history. Maybe it's Princeton. I can't remember. He uh, he has six children. His wife is an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, their kids are incredibly well. Be- this is why I hate him. His kids are so like. He has six kids and they're incredibly well behaved and they serve lunch for you and they do it. They're like, it's sickening because everything uh, works uh, great in Sully's life. And so we are going to tear him to shreds. We are going, that's what we do at the roast. It's nice. It's a nice roast. It's not like a mean roast and Whoopi Goldberg and, and, uh, and Ted Danson aren't going to show up in blackface. It's fun. It's amazing. The ro- commentaries roast our big fundraiser of the year and we're going to be giving you details later with that also present at that roast will be and you can meet them you can meet them if you come executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john friendly guy he's a friendly guy loves to say hello to all of the listeners 
And of course, and I'll uh, shake hands. And, and, and you'll shake hands. And uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, John. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Now, Christine also very friendly. Loves to meet people. Don't cross her because she's a black belt. <laughs> I promise not to throw anyone around at the roast, even though it so is pro- off the record. It's off the it's record. Off the re- it's totally knows? off the record. Totally <laughs> off the record. But don't cross her is what I'm saying. <laughs> and of course, associate editor Noah Rothman, who is probably like one of the is like a, the glamour star of the roast. People are always like, "Where's Noah? I want to meet Noah." Hi, Noah. Hi. <laughs> I don't believe it. It is true. Hi. Where's that Noah? People say to me. That's what they say. I'm telling you right now. Get another martini in him. Okay, so why do I think we're going to be unmasked? We're going to have this event. Now, remember, it's November. It's the end of November, so uh, near the end of November. So we're talking, I don't someone do math for me, six months, something like that. Uh, watch the numbers, friends. Yesterday, there were 22,000 new cases of COVID. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, excuse me, there were 78,000 new cases of COVID a day. Yesterday, 22,000 cases. This is the cliff, the bottom falling out. We have, we have gone over the good cliff, not over a bad cliff. The numbers are declining vertiginously. And um, though I'm a little more leery of noting these kinds of things because for complicated reasons, um, the, the, the daily death rate also has hit the lowest rate uh, it's been at since March of 2020. I'm nervous about this because those are weekend numbers, and sometimes those numbers are uh, reported late or stuff like that. But the caseload is the important thing. No? Why? Noah's shaking his head. No, I'm shaking my head good because I just clicked on my state, New Jersey. Oh. And it's, it's shocking. It's shocking the number of how this, everything just fell off a cliff. I hadn't checked it in a couple of days. But, you know, it was up there April 1st. It was up there was like 5,600 new cases, I and mean, it's not not great. Today, yeah, well, seven-day average right now is 893 with new cases, three, 330. So new think cases, about 330, this. But, Jersey, but also more than half yeah. the state is vaccinated. So it makes sense. During, during, the, during the surge that we heard about, the Michigan surge, New Jersey, I believe, was the second worst state yeah. in that surge. Period. Yeah, it was going up and up and up and up, and it crested yeah. on April 1st. Right. And just fell off a cliff. Right. So we have gone from 78,000 cases to 22,000 cases in three weeks. Um, we were at, I believe, 33,000 cases the day before yesterday. And I think we were also in the 30s the day before that. And then we were in the mid-40s the day before that. This is what a chart on a graph as you know, I'm bad at math, but even I know when a dot goes and then you put a dot to its right that is lower than the dot that was before it, and, and you have another one lower to the right of that, another one lower there, it's going down. And if it's going, and if the dots are pretty close, uh, but one is a lot lower, that means it's going down fast. So for you, for those of you who are math challenged, the dots are going in the right direction exactly what we would want and of course the fewer cases there are the fewer cases there are that's how infection and contagion work so noah noticed a change in tone yesterday on the morning shows shall you elaborate i shall um so what have i been saying for the longest time that 
the answer to this whole situation is glaringly obvious when it comes to the vaccine hesitancy thing. Give people an incentive in the form of getting their life back. And getting their life back means going maskless. People who are fully vaccinated do not have to wear a mask inside or outside. And I'm going to stick to that position, even though it's politically inconvenient to say as much. Poll came out conducted by the um, University of uh, California, Los Angeles published in the New York Times, showed the incentives for going maskless among uh, Republicans, Republican voters, if you no longer had to wear a mask, it was like plus 18 points, 53%. Even among Democrats, Hispanics, independents, all across the board, the incentives for going maskless if you, you know, to get vaccinated, would you get vaccinated if you could go maskless, were huge. It was off the charts responding to this sort of thing. So I said, you know, this is obvious. It is so obvious, the answer to this riddle. And yesterday you had people, and they're asking this in the Sunday shows, um, the hosts are asking, listen, when are we going to see indoor, indoor specifically, mask mandates disappear? And you had people like um, Scott Gottlieb, who's recently been pretty good on this issue, but has been more reticent in, in, in previous months saying, listen, we're at a point where former we have to- FDA, Former FDA, former FDA director FDA. And again, under Trump pretty, and an AEI spokesman. He was, doc- he was Dr. Doomish. Yes, he, he was, was pretty Dr. Doomish. And he's yeah. risk averse when it comes to a whole host of other public health issues, you know, the vaping and, and, and the food you eat. Like he's he's a very, you know, public health bureaucracy type. And he's saying, listen, people have to judge their own individual risk based on their own circumstances. And we're at a point now where guidance has to comport with the observe observations that we're seeing in the data, which is declining um, caseloads. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci was on ABC with George Stephanopoulos. He was asked again whether it's time to stop start relaxing indoor mask mandates. He replied, I think so. You're going to be probably seeing that as more people get vaccinated, we need to start being more liberal um, with the the number of vaccinations. And then finally, um, Jeff Zients, I believe is his name, is the the head of the task force, the president's task force for COVID said, listen. Soon to be be leaving, because, you know, he was only, he only came to the White House only briefly to help so he could go back because evidently I would say he's been fired, but allowed to say that he was leaving. Along you know why? With, Maybe this he? is why. Please, please. Oh, who's the other guy who also? Left oh, I'm sorry. I'm wrong about Jeff Zients. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 not been, I got this wrong and I'm going to correct myself before I get sued. It's not Jeff Zients. It's Andy Slavitt, <laughs> Andy Slavitt who arrived and is leaving. Okay. Jeff Zients, so, unfortunately, Zients said, is staying because here's what he said. He said that the CDC guidance across time will allow vaccinated people more and more privileges to take off that mask. So we can we can quibble with the language, and I think we should. But ultimately, the headline here is that there's a dramatic tone shift when it came just last week, when it comes, comes to the necessity of wearing a mask indoors if you're vaccinated. A week ago, it was, listen, you got to do this. Not only is the, the, the virus is out there, it's everywhere. If you're in a, a dangerous situation, you don't even know it. You got to wear a mask, but also to make yourself a good example for everyone else who isn't vaccinated. That lasted like a week and a half, two weeks. And everybody seems to have determined here, at least in the policymaking quarter, that this is not an effective inducement to getting people vaccinated. Imagine that. Um, okay, I so why is, why is Joe Biden still wearing a mask all the time? And everyone around him in his administration who are, who were among the very first people in this country to be privileged enough to get their vaccinations and to protect them. That messaging, I'm sorry, every time there's some news clip that shows them all masks, every time you see Kamala Harris give her husband a kiss through their mutual masks. I mean, 
that is the wrong message. When are they? I really think there's going to have to be a moment where they stop masking indoors before local officials are going to feel comfortable telling local businesses they can take those where must wear mask signs down. It's it's bad optics, I think, for him to continue what? to do that. Uh, I think there will be such a moment and he will play it as as this grand um, uh, instance in the in the story of the pandemic. I'm now removing my mask because we we've done it. We are safe to do so now. We now you can do so. You know, again, it's, week. it's a sort, sort of, of pretend, like infrastructure week. Right. But it's just, Biden's on this pretend timeline, you know, and that that will be another another data point on it. Yeah, 150 days, 133 days. On the 200th day, he sent the dove out from Mount Etna. <laughs> it came back, and then he knew that he could leave the ark and bring the animals into the world that 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 uh, the new world that God had presented us. That that is that what you're that what you're saying? Yes. He's, yes. He, he sent the. <laughs> He sent yeah. the bat out. <laughs> By the way, thank you for mentioning the bat because we didn't even talk about this before we started the show. But uh, how about the dam breaking in the last five days on the, uh, you know what? Odds are greater that it was a lab accident than that it was a bat in a cave and the and somehow the transmission passed to humans. We have not only a major article by uh by the probably the most decorated science journalist of our time nicholas wade in medium uh which is ten thousand words long and much of it is incomprehensible to anybody you know maybe again if you're good at science and math unlike me you would be able to follow the technology and jargon that he's using but I mean, it's a pretty unassailable argument that if you were to go by the fact pattern, that it's more likely that the Wuhan lab was experimenting with uh, producing this virulent strain uh, of this uh, virus in order to learn how to defeat it. That's why you generate these. It's a it's a you don't generate them in order to you know to be al qaeda ish and release it into the world and kill people you're doing it in order to see if you can figure out the means by which to kill it off but that um the lab had inconsistent uh, protocols standards and he and wade actually explains why it is so difficult to work with incredibly contagious virulent strains of things in labs because if you are to treat them the way they should be treated you basically have to act as though you're on the moon you you wear a, a level four protection suit it's like wearing a space suit and you've got these gloves on and just manipulating anything picking up a test tube or having to do anything you know um tactile is incredibly difficult and so there is a kind of institutional bias toward lowering the threat level just so you can work more effectively and comfortably in the lab and that is the thing that may have happened and there's that piece there's a piece i now i again i'm blocking on this on in a in a, in a notable british uh uh scientific magazine that kind of says the same so remember when tom cotton was treated like he was unsafe by the 
Twitter moron community when he gave the speech saying we need to investigate the role of China and the Wuhan lab in this. Remember that? Guess who was probably right? Well, Wade had a very sharp observation as to why this sort of stuck because that was sort of, uh, we, we saw a lot of people playing with that theory early on in this pandemic in a, in a much more um, uh, academic way, taking it you know re- reasonably seriously. And it was dismissed following a lot of science journalism. And Wade's theory there is that, um, you know, the people who cover science generally do not take, do not have an adversarial relationship with their sources um, because they've never experienced, unlike political journalism, they've never experienced a condition in which they're being spun, they're being misled, or there's a a broader political agenda at work that would otherwise frustrate their, their work. They're they have a healthy and friendly relationship with their sources. They, they don't anticipate being spun. And in this situation, they were being spun in part because of the political relationships that exist in the international public health community, and most notably um, the WHO and uh, its relationship with China. And that essentially led to the conditions in which you had now this, this really obnoxious sort of politicized backlash against anybody who even entertained the, the notion that there should be an intermediary animal here that would evince the kind of antigens that would suggest that this had a jump and we have yet to find it and we couldn't we didn't see it then we couldn't find it now but that's the sort of question that was shouted down in april of last year because it didn't comport with what they were being told by the people they trusted and liked and in a remarkable other piece today by Ben Smith in the New York Times, there is an, there is an article about the uh, – Ben Smith has written a column about how China has been leveraging its media power all over the world following its Belt and Road process uh, in which it is you know, supplying infrastructure to the world in, in, in exchange for things like votes at the UN and stuff like that that China is now creating essentially a kind of global news service uh, that uh, Xinhua's news agency and others are supplying video and they're supplying articles and this and that that go to South America, to Africa, to other places in, in, in Asia. Um, and uh, you have to figure that part of this, at least in the, you know, over the last year, was more favorable spin or the suppression of unfavorable spin about what was going on in China at the Wuhan lab, that they are leveraging some version of soft power. He then likens this to what the United States did after after the Cold War uh, with the um, U.S. Information Agency and the CIA funding things like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which created intellectual magazines like Encounter and various other things, except, of course, what the United States was doing there was propagating liberal values. I don't mean like current, but the way we use the word liberal now. I mean classical Western liberal values in a world that was being threatened by totalitarian ideology, communism. And here we have the Chinese who are promulgating an overseas media and propaganda strategy, the purpose of which is to praise China itself, not to propagate larger values that are dissonant with the ideas that were being spread by the Soviets and their allies and the ideological spread, China is kind of 
though it is a communist regime, it is kind of post-ideological. It's doing something else. So I don't really think that that's a fair analogy, but it is a fair analogy if what you're talking about is a great power harnessing great power methods to get its message across the world. And China is doing that while we are sitting here. And I would say even the fact that we are still going to be loath to to um, the, the administration sorry, is going to be loath to pick up this question and say, our great adversary may have unleashed, unwittingly unleashed, a deadly contagion upon the world. A contagion, by the way, that in all our innocence, we helped fund because part of the project was funded by the U.S. government that we helped fund in our innocence, in our innocence about their competence, the world needs to know that this is something that China did that is both true and it is also a part of a great power rivalry here. We're not, we cannot let them get away with this if they're going, not only because truth demands it, but also because we need to make sure that the world knows what it's getting into if it is going to let China be a dominating player country by country. Abe, you're a you're a China hawk. Sure. Uh, indeed I am. But no, it, it's funny. I was, I, what I was thinking of was um it's sort of like um the, the description of what of what China's up to is kind of like um a sort of um manufactured soft power. It's not you know where soft power comes traditionally from and at least when we think of the American soft power from uh, uh, organically from what the country is, um, which then has a positive effect on people. Um, this is like um, sort of uh, soft power for uh, the ironic age where you, you can't, you can't praise anything in earnest anyway. So, uh, so why not praise China for being iconic, good or bad? Well, and it's a, it's a different um, approach in terms of how Americans' minds might be changed to see China as more of a threat than many people want to see it right now. I mean, imagine if you, for those of us who grew up as kids during the Cold War, imagine if every toy you played with said made in the Soviet Union on it. It's it just there, there's something about China's practical ability beyond its ideological mission and beyond its nationalist mission that that has already that that's where the game they're far ahead of the game in the West. Um, and I really think that the you know the fact that as soon as anyone said Wuhan flu, everyone's like you're a xenophobic racist, and you know Nancy Pelosi hightailed it down to Chinatown, and you know there, there's a political overreaction to even a whiff of xenophobia in this country that actually it works very well for Chinese propagandistic purposes. And we shouldn't, we, we should always highlight that. That's a really important thing in terms of how our political leadership postures with regard to China. I think it's also a bizarre misunderstanding of the message of like a respectable and uh, intellectually consistent, I don't know what you would call it, sort of anti-China a set of ideas because I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a soft power example, interesting example. Uh, Nomadland won Best Picture at the Oscars. Nomadland is a movie about you know American nomads. Basically, it was writ it was written and directed by uh, a woman named Chloe Zhao, who is China born and came to the United States as a teenager. Uh, 
Chloe Zhao is now in her early 40s. Disney hired Chloe Zhao, who is an independent filmmaker, for a $200 million project called The Eternals, which is one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that's going to come out in the fall, starring Angelina Jolie. Disney is very conscious of wanting to be a major player in the Chinese film market, which is now the second largest film market in the world, uh, and wants to make a lot of money there. And Bob Iger, the now executive chairman of Disney, like spent a lot of time there. And, you know, they built a Shanghai Disneyland, and there's all kinds of Disney is very conscious of the idea that if it can be a dominating cultural force in China, it will secure its advantage, you know, uh, as, a, as a corporately for years to come. And so it hired Chloe Zhao as a director in part, almost consciously, because she is herself of Chinese origin and is in fact a Chinese, you know, born, born in China. Except that Chloe Zhao gave an interview to a magazine called Cineast 10 years ago in which she said something like the Chinese government just lies and lies and lies. And Disney is now facing the very real prospect that the Eternals is going to be banned in China because this quote from Chloe Zhao exists. Now, that quote from Chloe Zhao in this magazine, I believe it's cineast. I, 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 may, be, I, I may be off on this, so, but has been memory hold. Apparently, you cannot find the original article and you cannot find the original quote if you do a Google search, but you can find it from somebody who had it, who put it down, which is how people know about it. But the magazine itself, or whichever magazine it was, seems to have been encouraged to delete the original source of this quote. So Disney misunderstands what it means to appeal to the Chinese market and in the United States. That's what I mean. Like Chloe Zhao is somebody whose family left China to come to the United States. People don't do that necessarily if they like the country that they're living in. And he thought, well, she's Chinese and they're Chinese and whoopie-dooby-doo. That's going to be so great. Look, her name is her name is Zhao. They're going to be so excited that we have a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie made by somebody named Zhao. Um, Except she, apparently she's from a family that doesn't like China. And China's like, here's my giant foot stamping on your movie forever. This is like... This is like Nancy Pelosi going to Chinatown and saying the Wuhan flu is xenophobic. How do we know people in Chinatown would think that was xenophobic? Don't if if they, if these were Russians in the United States, they would have hated the Soviet Union. They didn't like the Soviet Union. Do Chinese nationals who come to America and make a life here, do they love the regime in China? Wouldn't they go back to live in China if they loved the regime in China? I'm very confused by this entire idea. But this is, you know, this is the larger danger of the America hating trend. Um, if you don't believe that what the U.S. stands for and what its founding ideals are and what we strive to get ever closer to um, in this country, if you don't believe in the in the the essential goodness of those things, um, you are completely susceptible to um, the, the 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 propaganda from other countries, and you don't you you've lost um, your compass 
in terms of how you how you can even assess uh, uh, the, the the good or evil of other nations and, and and other countries. I think that's very true. And you know what else is true? You need a good desk chair. How often have I been telling you you need a good desk chair? You know how I know because I got myself a good desk chair. They sent me an X chair. They sent me an X chair with the dynamic lumbar support, which provides unbelievable lumbar support for my back, and that new XHMT technology that provides both heat and massage therapy for massage settings and heat to make you comfortable while you sit for hours in your desk chair doing the work that you have to do. This is the luxury supercar of office chairs. I love it. My kids love it. My wife loves it. We all love it. And I look forward to spending hours sitting in the Ultimate Therapeutic Massager. You won't believe the X-Chair difference until you feel the X-Chair difference. And it's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters. Commentary. Dot com. Um, so, you know, how we always say that the beginning of an administration, uh, prov- the world's going to test it. The people are going to test it and see where it comes down. This was something that was said for years about North Korea, that it was going to test, right? It tested Trump, it tested Obama, you know, did something provocative uh, really in, in early early stages to see what the bribery situation might be, where they could, you know, threaten uh, nuclear exchange and see what they could get. And in fact, bribes are always paid. And Trump gave uh, Kim Jong-un a summit. And they, they wrote lovely, after after Trump said fire and fury and we're going we're gonna to destroy you, then they're writing love letters to each other and all of that. Well, there's another place where testing has uh, traditionally taken place, and that is... Uh, the Middle East, and particularly Israel-Palestine. And we have that now, right? We have a test now, three months into the administration, on uh, we we are hitting the uh, anniversary of the unification of Jerusalem uh, after uh, the 1967 Six-Day War when Israel took back uh, uh, and, and solidified Jerusalem in, in, in taking the West Bank from uh, Jordan. Um, and there, uh, as has often been the case, but now much more violently uh, this year than others, uh, there is uh, very sustained political violent action going on around the Temple Mount uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, Temple Mount often cited as the um, the third holiest site in Islam. So it's like, you know, and the Temple Mount is controlled by a group called the Waqaf, which, is, which controls it and is a Muslim group. That has denied that denies legally denies the right of Jews to pray on the Temple Mount in order to in order to ensure that there aren't uh, you know conflicts to 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 create you know to lessen the possibility of conflicts also because they want to claim sovereignty over the Temple Mount. But here's the thing: it's the third holiest site in in Islam, right? The Temple is the first holiest site in Judaism. The temple is the temple. That is the holiest site. The holiest site in Israel is the is the is the Western Wall, or what was called the Wailing Wall for a long time, which is basically was a retaining wall outside the Temple Mount, and is the remaining was for a long time the remaining archaeological evidence of the Second Temple, 
and it's sitting there. Now there's a lot more. There's way a lot more. There's stuff underneath. There are tunnels underneath and stuff like that. But for a long time, for many centuries, and it was, and so it's the holiest site in Judaism. But somehow, you know, in the world of people who are always citing it as the third holiest site in Islam, being number three in Islam is way more important than being number one in Judaism. But nonetheless, so there's this, there's violent actions. The violent actions are provoked by the Palestinians and and the Israelis respond and then everybody starts yelling at at Israel. Okay? So and tragically uh apparently the Biden administration has bitten. Uh we know that Jake Sullivan the national security advisor uh contacted uh uh Mayor Al-Shabat the uh the Israeli national security advisor to express his concern over the violence and to counsel, you know, uh, th- this is the kind of language that was u- has been used forever uh, to kind of equalize the notion that people who throw rocks and foment disorder, when the authorities try to quell the disorder, the problem is the authorities and not those who, who, who create the disorder. And then we're going to go into one of the reasons why there is this thing going on. But what do you, what do you guys make of Jake's... Now, Jake, the, the readout of this call does not say we call on Israel to show restraint. It doesn't, the language is kind of vague and says we express our concern, which is fine in some ways because, of course, Israel is expressing its concern over the violence by attempting to quell the the violence. Uh, So if you're going to parse the language, the language is, is not as bad as language often has been when you're talking about Israelis practicing self defense against. Palestinian activist efforts to foment discord with Israel, particularly a week after Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, canceled elections, making him now uh, going into his 17th year of a four-year term where he has not had elections because it became very clear that if those elections happened, he and the Palestinian Authority would lose power to Hamas. Okay, so that's setting the table. Uh Abe, Abe, what's your what's your take here? Um, I mean, I kind of rev- I kind of view this response as uh, boilerplate uh, 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 democratic uh, uh, foreign policy at this point. Um, I think mean, I think sort of. I mean, it's not as bad as you say, as uh, you know, like what uh, John Kerry would always you know weigh in with like the, the worst possible. A call for uh, you know a, a, a calm or, or or whatever when during the Obama years, um, but there have been uh, other bad responses emanating from from the U.S. from, uh, from uh, Elizabeth Warren, from Rashida Tlaib, uh, from Ilhan Omar. There that that are all sort of as bad as 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 one uh, would expect. This is the if there's any flare up under any circumstance. Involving Israel and and the Palestinians, these 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 parties can reliably be depended on um, to to act without any sense of context other than this their uh, sort of built in understanding that um, Israel's wrong about about everything and that the Palestinians Palestinians are innocent and they're merely throwing rocks and you can't both sides this. Um, I think what's kind of interesting to me this time around, I wonder, is that um, at this point in history, where aren't there riots? I mean, you know, I don't mean this very second, but I mean, but there's so much um, 
sort of, you know, instability and things flare up so, so often in so many places right now that um, it's, it's sort of less, it's, it's not the, the, the shiny object on the horizon that, that um, Middle East unrest once was, I think. And I wonder what's a good point. I mean, I mean, I mean, you don't hear Israel calling on the U.S. government or the government of uh, of, you know, Minneapolis, the mayor of Minneapolis to show restraint. Not not that he would. It would would go the other way uh, or Portland or something like that. But that is that we are ourselves living through an uncommonly violent and confrontational period in the United States. So it is a little weird. Also internationally. Don't do that. Don't do that. Really? Yeah, and internationally, right? Germany, there were there there have been sort of uh, coronavirus riots and various and various other places. But there, but there's a way in which actually uh, Abe's point about this being kind of boilerplate democratic foreign policy response is true. But I wonder how much of it is uh, is boilerplate in the sense that, like, if you read what you know, the Rashida Tlaib tweet yesterday in particular, she she says, "Oh, I you know I was seven when I first prayed at the Al Aqsa with my." Uh, city. It's a sacred site for Muslims. It's equivalent to attacking the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for Christians or the Temple Mount for Jews. Israel attacks it during Ramadan. Where's the outrage, POTUS? So her tweet really did call on the Biden administration to do more. And in fact, it's a reasonable, I mean, he should. they shouldn't respond. They shouldn't say anything at all, actually. But his left flank, which hates Israel, is going to be doing this every time anything happens in Israel with the Palestinians. We know this. And she is, you know, Tlaib is, is among the most egregious uh, at at, you know, this kind of propaganda. And Elon Omar also chimed in. So, you know, the usual suspects will always be there ready to foment uh, hatred, but he shouldn't respond. And I don't know how much it was, a, it, it was very vague and, and not a firm response. And, and I think to the point of context for this particular altercation, that's all that matters here is the context, you know, the legal context about the debates right. over homes in the area, all, all of this. Right. So we should right there and when. Go we ahead. should get into this because this is this is a very important and complicated story that people don't understand. Okay, you are hearing if you read this that there are fights over a neighborhood in East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh Jarrah <clears throat> is the term in Arabic, obviously, for this area, which was not the name of the area to Jews and does not now remain the name of the area to Jews, who call it uh, uh, Shimon HaTzadik, Simeon the Just. Simeon the Just was a uh, rabbi, a holy man, uh, who died in, uh, who was a high priest, uh, uh, and uh, it is claimed that his tomb exists in this neighborhood. Uh, There are disputes about that. Um, But uh, that is the claim. And in 1876, the Jewish community in Jerusalem purchased this area from Bedouins for 15,000 francs. The Jewish community, which was sort of the preceding community to the Jewish agency and to the the administrative structure set up that ended up becoming the state of Israel. In 1948, so it was owned by the Jewish community. In 1948, when the War of Independence happened and when the armistice was finally reached, Jordan had taken control and seized this area. 
of East Jerusalem. And there was, this was the great boundary that was basically broken down when Israel won the six day war and took this area back along with the rest of the West, took the rest of the West bank. Jordan had no claim, had no legal claim, moral claim, or any claim to East Jerusalem or, or anywhere else. But it took it, and along with doing all sorts of other wonderful, charming things like desecrating uh, the Jewish cemeteries on the Mount of Olives and, and, and other things, uh, it allowed people to squat in these houses. 27 families, I believe, remain in these houses in, Sheikh, in what they call Sheikh Jarrah. When Israel took the city back, took this area back that had been where property rights, international property rights had been secured by private owners in 1876, purchasing the land. They had purchased the land. They hadn't seized it. They didn't take it from Arabs who had lived there forever. They purchased it legally. Uh, there has there has been litigation now going on for more than 50 years over how to handle these titles and the families that are living in these houses, which they do not own and which they never owned and in which they were squatters. And so they have squatters rights, which is a very complicated issue in the world of rights and law. Uh, This area has now been purchased by a developer who wants to tear down the houses and build something new. And this has now been an issue that has become a complicated legal issue. And so the fight, because the people who live in these houses pay no rent because they claim that this land was seized from them as Arabs in general and the Jews have no title to it. They therefore don't have to pay rent and they're not paying rent. And so they have effectively been evicted for non-payment of rent. And the houses will be torn down. This is the proximate, this is the supposed cause of everything that is going on here, which is, of course, a lie, because what's going on here is Mahmoud Abbas is trying to distract from the fact that he canceled elections. And because the Palestinians are waving at their supporters in the West and at the Biden administration and saying, What are you going to do? You just started. Hello, pay attention to us. What are you going to do for us? Where's where is this going, right? Do not be fooled. This is a dodge and a distraction. Those houses, that's 27 families. They do not have the rights to live in those houses. They have been living in those houses for decades and decades and presumably could very easily strike some kind of a deal in which they will be paid a bribe to leave them. They are not leaving them because they are being used as a political issue. This is a lie. This is a big lie. This is yet another big lie. And every leftist Jewish organization that swallows it or wants to promote it is doing so for false reasons, cynical reasons, although ultimately not cynical because what they believe in is that Zionism is wrong and that the Jewish, the idea that Jews have an eternal home in 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 Israel and particularly in in Jerusalem is wrong and here we have a case in which it is unmistakably the fact that there is a legal title to these homes this would be in essence as though not that this is maybe not a fair analogy but 
Somebody owned a Klimt painting, right? A German Jew owned a Klimt painting. He fled and he had to leave the painting in the in the house and a Nazi took it and the painting goes down in the family for two generations and the Jewish family that owned it comes back and says, that's my Klimt paint. This is a real thing that happened. Said, that's my painting. And they're like, no, no, it's ours. You left it behind. It's like, oh yeah, we left it behind? We left it behind because you, your, your people killed six million of my people. We didn't leave it behind by choice, and we didn't leave our we didn't leave uh, you know Shimon Hatzedek by choice. Tzadik, excuse me, Shimon Hatzedek by choice. We didn't leave it by choice. Jordan attacked us and took our took this land from us. It does not belong to you. It was stolen from us in a war. Okay, I'm done. But it goes to show at this point what a, a sort of poor selection of arguments and cases that the anti-Zionist crowd has to, to try to stir up a, a global anti-Israel sentiment. To take this private legal case involving a number of families and turn this into, into, into something, you know, representing an, an international war crime. Well, they're chomping at the bit to get re- involved in the peace process again. I mean, you only hear that's I, you know, just I hadn't seen the Rashida Tlaib quote, but you know, sort of a common refrain in pieces that you read about this in domestic um, media outlets like the Washington Post is that you know, un- unlike in previous decades, the absence of an activist Washington here for suggests a foreboding that this process will never be resolved. Yada yada yada. So this the Biden administration and Joe Biden fancies himself a foreign policy president. He's terrible at it. He doesn't understand geopolitics and he makes, he has really bad instincts when it comes to foreign affairs, but he's desperate. He really wants to get involved in the peace process. The only, the only distinction here that's, that really matters is the lack of any Arab involvement. You don't hear any Arab states clamoring for Washington to invest, to, to invest itself in this process, obviously for reasons that we've talked about on this podcast for many, many uh, weeks, maybe even years at this point, actually, now that I think about it. Um, but to the extent that uh, the situation on the ground has changed so dramatically over the course of the Trump presidency that the Arab world's governments, at least, recognize the strong arming that's going on here, recognize this as a test of the Western powers, not as a test of Jerusalem, not as a test of them, but as a test of the extent to which Western Europe and the United States are willing to get involved in this process and therefore stifle the progress that we've seen towards a thawing and normalizing of relations between Israel and its neighboring Arab states. I mean, we should also mention uh, the story in the New York Times by Stephen Erlanger and David Sanger about the Iran nuclear deal uh, that runs as follows. President Biden and Iran's leaders say they share a common goal. They both want to re-enter the nuclear deal that President Donald J. Trump scrapped three years ago, restoring the bargain that Iran would keep sharp limits on its production of nuclear fuel in return for a lifting of sanctions that have choked its economy. But after five weeks of shadow boxing in Vienna hotel rooms, where the two sides pass notes through European intermediaries, it has become clear that the old deal strictly defined does not work for either of them anymore, at least in the long run. <clears throat> the Iranians are demanding that they be allowed to keep the advanced nuclear fuel production equipment they installed after Mr. Trump abandoned the pact and integration with the world financial system beyond what they achieved 
under the 2015 agreement. The Biden administration, for its part, says the restoring the old deal is a stepping stone. It must be followed immediately by an agreement on limiting missiles in support of terrorism and making it impossible for Iran to produce enough fuel for a bomb for decades. The Iranians say no way. So guess what? You can't restore the Iran nuclear deal because guess who has no incentive to restore the Iran nuclear deal? The Iranians. They got the frozen money. Yeah, there are sanctions. You could lift the sanctions. They got the frozen money. They're now producing nuclear fuel. Uh, What's in it for them? Just so Biden can say we went back into the Iran nuclear deal, which stunk, which was a, which was which was a ludicrous deal that sixty two percent of the American people opposed at the time that the United States struck it. By the way, that's not you saying it; that's this administration saying it. Joe Biden campaigned on, and his and the members of his administration and state have reiterated that we will not return to the JCPOA framework because it was insufficient. It's insufficient to deal with the problem, and it didn't deal with the problem, and we need a better deal. And all of us know that that's nonsense because they would take whatever they could get. So this is this is the interesting point about about the question of whether or not the Biden administration, <clears throat> which is very young, uh, can be creative in a weird way. That is to say, okay, so Trump, uh, you know, a completely uh, unconventional president who basically, if Obama, I was going to say Obama, if Obama did something like he wanted to do the opposite, right? And um, in in at least two areas, I think, with Iran and in Iraq, and Iran in Iraq, and and with Israel, Palestine, and the Arabs, his loathing of Obama, a bore weird uh, and spectacular diplomatic fruit, uh, and and led to kind of creativity uh, in how things were going to be managed, such that we killed Soleimani, the world's leading harvester, progenitor, and uh, and um, and uh, husbander of terrorism, uh, and and a attacker of American troops, and. We helped midwife to, to the extent that we could by not interfering with it, the uh, Abrahamic Accord world in which Israel starts making new kinds of common cord with its neighbors. Uh, common cause. Okay, so what does this say to us about Biden? Here we are. He is now being asked by his people and by his own kind of uh, conventional wisdom world to go right back where they were. In twenty between two thousand eight and twenty sixteen, on these matters, we to restore to equilibrium policies that we've not only advanced beyond, but that were not helpful to them, that were that were harmful to the world, and that they could build on, they could use as as stepping stones, as he says, to different and more creative policies instead of going brain dead and just playing the same game that was played before. And the temptation to go brain dead is obvious. We all have it politically, right? We're like, it's the classic, like, go back to cutting tax rate, whatever it is. Like, go back to your comfort zone. Iran deal was great. You know, we need to be a, uh, you know, we need to sort of help the Palestinian, however you want to look at it. And they, they can do that. 
question is what they're going to do with this experience with Iran and Vienna and what they're going to do with the Palestinians now. They don't have to go here. Do they or do they? Because, Christine, you would say maybe they do. Because maybe they don't have any antibodies to resist. Well, they can't. uh, To do anything creative is to do something too much like the previous administration did, and they cannot do that. They're they're activist base on uh, particularly on these issues will not allow it and the media will not uh, help them pursue a narrative that makes it palatable to those groups I mean, you know the irony here though of course is that we hear so much uh, from the left about how um, we can never go back to the way things were before the pandemic uh, the, the the old ways were so un- unjust um, and it's like you know yeah Biden Biden comes in here and it's you know he t- with his time machine to go except to, foreign policy right, yes. that's where the hot tub yes. time machine is useful yes <laughs> uh it is kind of amazing and uh, all the uh, bad old bad old liberal ideas too i mean you know uh, domestic ideas too absolutely uh so it's amazing and you know what else is amazing tommy john tommy john not the pitcher tommy john the underwear because look, when you're wearing Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you're that much more comfortable. So you can do everything better. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Fanatics that call Tommy John's hammock pouch one of life's greatest inventions. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. Like an air mesh interior hammock and moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. With over 13 million pairs sold, uh, America loves Tommy John underwear because everything stays in place. Tommy John underwear is a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. The legs never ride up and you're covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. And right now, you'll get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. That's 20% off your first order of underwear and loungewear at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details. Um, let's talk a little about the jobs report that we talked about on Friday that was so awful, um, and, uh, how basically it was so shocking that, uh, there was an instant outbreak of common sense at the possibility that the reason that so few jobs were being created or filled was because government had become too generous in providing benefits that meant that people, could profitably stay home instead of going to work. And you started reading this on Friday and reading analyses on Friday. And, of course, that could not be allowed to stand. <laughs> no, that don't, couldn't don't. be allowed to stand. I Noah? watched this you know, right away. I mean, it was the it dawned on everyone that they couldn't run away from the facts of the case. Um, when this jobs report dropped, the consensus was, among responsible observers of, of data, that... Yeah, employers just cannot compete with the federal government here, which is providing um, benefits that they cannot that cannot be met in the private sector. Their labor is is priced out now of what they would be in the marketplace, um, and that's that still persists among people who are beholden to the da- to the data on the left. People like Steve Ratner on MSNBC are still making this case. And it's an easy case to make. I mean, you're arguing with hundreds of thousands of employers who are as vocal as they possibly can be about how the fact that they are desperate for labor and cannot fill these jobs. But it didn't take long 
for the progressive class to start talking themselves out of the facts of this case and into an ideological um, idea of why this is happening and an ideological means out of it. Um, I, I think everybody has their own favorites. My personal favorite is the idea that now that sort of came and went, but it's still with us a little bit, which is that most of the job gains that we've seen, and there are, there's still, there are still gains. It's not the a million that we expected. It's about a quarter million on, um, over the course of the last month. And those gains are mostly enjoyed by men, which means that women are still locked out of the labor market. And why wouldn't they be locked out of the labor market? Because they they lack for for child care because the schools are all closed. So this justifies a $1.5 trillion intervention in the private economy to create this big child care infrastructure funded by the federal government, not reopening schools, which are closed in part because of the reasons that the same people who want to create the childcare infrastructure are keeping them closed in order to compete with, or rather to mitigate the risks of COVID. So they've created the conditions that they now want to address through a broad public sector intervention. It only makes sense if you are completely blinkered and uh, beholden to a progressive worldview. Okay. Um, but there are many others that are just as fun. Okay. I got to read you the, the best one. This is the best one. I think it's the best one. Catherine Rampell, who is an economics uh, columnist for the uh, Washington Post, uh, on CNN, quote, Certainly the numbers were much lower than had been expected. I think there are a number of reasons to be concerned about labor supply being suppressed in some way. You know, workers wanting jobs, but still being hesitant to take the jobs and offers. Some of that might have to do with, of course, with the fact that they are getting more generous unemployment benefits. But... There are a lot of other factors, too, including lack of access to childcare, public transit cutbacks, the risk of getting sick at work, the risk of, frankly, getting assaulted at work if you tell a customer to wear a mask. So there are a lot of complex things going on here. Yes. Yes, a jobs report that was expecting a million new jobs and 266,000 were created. Hundreds of thousands of people are refusing to look for a job because they're worried that they'll get assaulted at work for telling a customer not to wear a mask. That that but in her statement is doing a lot of heavy lifting. B-U-T, folks, not B-U-T-T. I want to point out that what that did, what her encapsulation there is the perfect example of how the politicization of masking, we talked about how the mask is the new MAGA hat for the other side. I mean, there's a, that description, of course, she's signaling to her, to the viewing audience of CNN that, look, this is exactly, I think she said, did she say this on CNN? It was on one of the cable news networks. She's basically signaling, look, they're going to come screaming at you. These crazy rubes who refuse to wear masks and have killed so many people during the pandemic. It's such a perfect encapsulation of wrongheaded thinking. But for someone who is an economics reporter to be talking like this is a bit concerning. Um, Why, why do we have a lack of access to childcare? Could it be that schools, many schools remain closed. Well, and even, but this is actually a really important point. Even the ones that are open are not consistently open. So that if you work an hourly wage job, you cannot ha- take a shift n- knowing whether or not you might have to quarantine or your kid suddenly the day is going to end at one rather than at three or at eight. You know, they'll go from eight to 10 one day, but from nine to 12 the other. If you're a shift worker, it's very difficult to schedule your shift with the way that even schools yeah. that are technically open are operating right now. Also, let's uh, can we discuss the public transit cutbacks? So, yes, uh, here were public transit cutbacks, if I could just share with you. Right. New York City 
has cut cut back subway service from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., which it is supposed to restore next week, I believe, uh, 24 hours. But this notion that people who two years ago were working are now not working because there were public transit cutbacks of indefined of an indefined undefined nature. Again, we're talking about seven hundred and fifty thousand missed jobs, not seventy five thousand jobs in a place where there were public trans. Where in say New York City, it's hard for people to go to, uh, to a night shift. Although I don't know who starts work at 1 a.m. or gets off at 4.30 a.m. necessarily. But let's say there are such people. So you could say there, There's well, a fair number of people in cities who work No, no, no. Like they that. work at yeah, night. Yeah. But I, but that there's a four-hour window there, not, not an eight-hour window, right? Okay. So anyway, public transit cutbacks? Like, this is like just pulling crap out of your ass to come up with bullshit reasons why people aren't going to work. Because somehow they managed to get to work before. If they really needed to go to work, they would go to work. If they can't get to work in a place where they have to go get public transit, in a world in which jobs are going begging, they're going to be able to find a job closer to home. This is only a problem when you're at 8 or 9% unemployment with no job, with no labor force demand, and you have to get whatever job you can, and that means getting a job 40 miles away. The whole this, point about John, the labor crisis is that there are jobs begging everywhere, not just where you got to schlep two hours to get one. But they are also participating in the hot take economy, which I participate in as well. This is a commodity that is perhaps a little overvalued, but I make a living off of it. So, John, I will not I will not uh, brook your assault on this on this sector of the economy that has been so good to people like us, Catherine Rampell. I mean, we, we thrive in this sort of situation. So, you know, let's be careful. We don't you're, rely you're on mass assets here. <laughs> Can I just say there is one thing that, that a couple of commentators have said that is worth exploring, but is difficult because it's a qualitative impact, not one that's easily quantifiable. And that's a general, uh, the remaining general sense of anxiety and fear about getting back to normal, which we've discussed. And there can be, I think it's that combined with no economic, uh, uh, you don't hear the, you don't feel the wolf at the door, right? Because you've got all these government benefits. Plus, you're still a little anxious. Are are we going to go back to normal? I don't know. The president's still triple masking. I, I'm a little nervous. Fauci says we might have to mask forever. So I think that those two combined factors can have a huge impact and give us those numbers. But they don't want to acknowledge the the kind of uh, political choices that were made to get us into both those situations. Uh, I want to apologize for my uh, vulgarity there before I, uh, you know, I, I got a little Tourette's there and uh, and uh, it was probably unnecessary, but it just uh, showed the uh, degree to which um, it's just really hard in the hot take economy. Sometimes people uh, serve you uh, a, 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 a rancid plate of something and you just have to throw it against the wall. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe Christina. No, I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the candle burning.